of covenantalism uh, week so far. And um, again, there's, there's lots to cover on this issue because it is, in a sense, covering the entire storyline of Scripture. So there's, there's plenty of things to, to look at and to talk about uh, in this series. Uh, Greg, how you doing? I'm good. Good. Yeah. Greg is preaching for us today, so I'm excited that Greg is uh, able to do that. But uh, can you pray for, for our time? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this uh, precious opportunity to uh, consider what your word says. Um, Lord, about how we're to understand it. Uh, Lord, what you reveal through your word about how everything fits together, uh, especially, Lord, through uh, the covenants. Um, and so, God, just give us wisdom, give us insight, help us uh, see what we need to see. Help Mark and I, Lord, uh, with what we talk about to be clear, um, Lord, and helpful for everyone here. And uh, Lord, I pray that we'd all uh, just grow in our knowledge of you, our knowledge of your word, um, our knowledge of the gospel, our knowledge of your kingdom, and our, our knowledge of how uh, your covenants shape uh, what you're doing through scripture. So God, we commit our hearts and our minds to you for this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just I want to put this uh, graphic back up on the screen that we talked about on the first week because I do think this is a helpful graphic to kind of get our bearings on what exactly this, uh, what, what exactly we're talking about. Uh, if you if you split it kind of down the middle here, that is one that is one beautifully straight line right there. You could take that to art class with you right there. So uh, if you look on this side of the line, you're dealing with all different forms of dispensational theology. Again, uh, not to go over all the details uh, twice, but dispensationalism started really formally in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, John Nelson Darby, and it promulgated later in that century through famous study Bibles, like the Schofield Study Bible, the Reference Bible, uh, the Ryrie Study Bible, and a whole bunch of other ones like that. It became really the dominant evangelical view uh, of the 20th century I mean, in, in a lot of different ways. And this view over here, with all forms of dispensationalism, they're going to view uh, the church and Israel as they're going to emphasize discontinuity or difference between Israel and the church. They're going to see God in, in the extreme edge over here. God has two plans for two peoples. Uh, he has an earthly people, Israel. He has a heavenly people, the church. And that's kind of the extreme radical edge of dispensationalism. Today, most people have abandoned the largely extreme edge of dispensationalism. There aren't a lot of uh, classic dispensationalists around in the main uh, seminaries and such things as that, but you do have revised and progressive dispensationalism, which is a little bit less intense, but still very much maintains a sharp distinction between uh, Israel and the church. On the other side of the screen here, you have all kinds of covenant theology, which are going to see more continuity or similarity between God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, and the church. And... As I mentioned before, you really have covenant theology, which is dealing more with Presbyterian view, and we are uh, in the middle here with uh, progressive covenantalism, which is more of a Reformed Baptist perspective on these things. Greg, any other just opening thoughts about this? Yeah, um, I want to make sure we understand, you know, why, why these uh, differences matter. Yeah. Um, because it's not just, you know, semantic. Um, you know, a couple of thoughts here as I was thinking about this. One, it does affect how we read and understand the story of the Bible. Um, you know, what, what is God's, what's going on? What is God's ultimate plan? How does that unfold? Um, what does the story look like? What is the story about? Um, you know, is the story about uh, what God's doing through Israel? Is the story about Jesus? Is it about something else? Um, where you fall on this spectrum is going to determine how you answer that, and that does matter. Like, it is significant uh, if you say, uh, if you're a dispensationalist, I mean, yeah, you're going to make a big deal about Jesus and the glory of God, but you're going to have Israel at the center of it all. 
Um, and I remember uh, John MacArthur saying uh, in, a, in a sermon a while back where he was like, if you get Israel right, you get everything else right. So it's a very Israel-centric view of the Bible. Um, we're, and again, when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not saying that dispensationalists don't believe, like strongly believe in the importance of Jesus and how vital he is, but we're arguing for a more Christ-centered view that it's, it's all about what God is doing through Christ and Israel is a piece in that leading towards Christ. Um, and so it affects how we read and understand the Bible. Uh, specifically, it affects how we understand the difference between Israel and the church and thereby God's promises. Um, you know, what promises are for you? Can you read the Old Testament and get anything from it? Um, what should you take from the Old Testament? If you go back to the, the classic dispensationalism, and thankfully you don't see this, like you said, much anymore, classic dispensationalists will tell you the Sermon on the Mount is not for the Christian. Yeah, that is, the, that is for the kingdom when Israel is in the kingdom in the millennium. That is not for the Christian. They would take large sections of the New Testament and say, that is not for you, Christians. That's for Israel. That's for Israel. Um, thankfully, revised and progressive don't say that anymore. Um, I, but, I just want to add there yeah, as a note, when MacArthur was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, this is decades ago, he disagreed with classic dispensationalism mm -hmm. right here. He said, there's no way that's right. And he preached the Sermon on the Mount to the church. So yeah. again, he is not as nearly as far to the edge as the earlier versions of dispensationalism. Yeah. And I mean, like, this is something like, it's not far removed. When I was in seminary, we, you know, obviously, you know, met a lot, had a lot of good friends at the church we were at. And one of the, the families we got to know, my wife got to know uh, the wife really well. And um, she had come out of a background, her and her husband, where you couldn't read the Sermon on the Mount as a Christian. So this isn't just theoretical. Like, it was a big deal that they, they came to the conclusion that this is for us as Christians. Um, so it affects how we understand the difference between Israel and the church and what, what that means for us. Um, you know, who are we as the people of God, uh, you know, and, and stuff like that. Number three, it affects our expectations of how the future will unfold and what that means for us. And the biggest one is if you're a dispensationalist, this is other than the distinction between Israel and the church, there's also this, the pre-tribulation rapture, which we'll get to more, um, some of that later. But if, if you believe that the church is going to be taken out of the world before things get really bad, that's going to affect how you live in the world right now. It's going to have a huge impact on how you live in the world right now. If you believe you're going to be going through the tribulation, that, that creates a completely different category for how you view life and suffering and struggles and persecution and stuff like that. Because the dispensational perspective will, will say, listen, no matter how bad it's going to get, you won't be here for the worst of it. You, you just won't. Um, you're, God's going to take you out um, before, before that happens. Um, and obviously, I believe the church is going to be here during the tribulation. I don't believe the church is going to be removed. I think Scripture is clear on that. And so that, that significantly alters and shifts our expectation of the, you know, the tribulation. Because if we're not going to be here, you know, okay, I don't have anything to worry about. But if you are going to be here, that, that changes. Okay, I need to be ready for the intense persecution um, that's going to come to God's people uh, before the end. And then lastly... Uh, another one that we'll get to more, but it affects our optimism or pessimism about the success or failure of the church in reaching the nations. Remember, dispensationalism divides history up into seven dispensations. If you're a progressive, it's four. Um, but in each of those dispensations, God deals with man in a different way. And at the end of each of those dispensations, it ends in failure. Each one ends in failure. So according to the dispensationalist perspective, and you can pick this up when you listen to John MacArthur even, the church is ultimately going to fail. 
the church is going to fail. The, the gospel is not going to get to the nations the way it should. That's for Israel to do during the seven-year tribulation when 144,000 Jews are converted and they go out and evangelize. Um, but it's not ultimately for us to complete that task. Um, and so the church age ends in apostasy. And yes, I do believe there is going to be a great apostasy before the end, but I also believe alongside that there's going to be a massive faithful remnant that is doing exactly what God said and is going to complete the task that God gave the church. And so that ultimately affects your view of missions and a whole lot of other issues. And so again, why, why, why do these issues matter? Why, you know, are, are we making a mountain out of a molehill? I don't think we are. Again, good Christians can disagree on this. Um, we count folks like MacArthur and the folks out at Masters and, and many others as well as dear brothers. Like MacArthur, if he speaks to a situation, I'm going to listen to him because, man, he's, he is just dogged when it comes to examining things. Do they line up with historic Christianity? So, like, I will, he will always have my ear, um, but that doesn't mean other things don't matter. Um, they do. They, they really do matter. If you'll flip to Romans 4, we're going to be in Romans 4 and 5 just a little bit here. Romans chapter 4, uh, as you're turning there, I'll, I'll, I'll just add one more thing to the list that Greg just mentioned. Another thing that would, that would be relevant would be, how, how do we see the promise made to Abraham and his seed that he will inherit the land? Okay, the land. And um, you can see how there's big repercussions on how you understand that. But uh, the Old Testament promises Israel the land. And then um, the question is, how are we to see that fulfilled, the land promise fulfilled? And if you're going to be in the dispensational camp, I mean, I think this would be true. I don't think there's an exception. I think this is all dispensationalists of every stripe would say, the land promise to Israel in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the millennium, the future millennium, uh, when Israel gets the land back for the thousand-year reign of Christ. Jesus reigns on David's throne in Jerusalem. And for that thousand-year reign, the promises to Israel are find fulfillment in that future millennium. If you take more of a historic pre-mill or amill position, we, we personally are amill, uh, Greg and I are, but it, it, whatever view you take, if you take more of a different perspective here, you're going to see the land promise fulfilled differently. And, and it's not a tiny difference. It's a pretty significant difference. So we would say, yes, God did make a promise to Abraham to give him the land. And here's what we would see. And we'll get to this more in future weeks. I'm just trying to give you some samples of what's, what we're talking about. So uh, going back to Adam, our subject for today, did God give the land to Adam and Eve in Eden? Yes, they had the land, right? And they were called to spread God's kingdom over the earth, fill the earth and subdue it, uh, populate the earth, and to basically spread Eden across the globe is the idea that I sort of picture for what they're called to do. So the original land promised to Adam and Eve, the, the original offer to Adam and Eve was to subdue how much? The whole earth. The whole world was the land. That, the, the land was the entire world. That was the goal of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fail. So we would say God gives a portion of the land back to Abraham, right? The promised land. He gives this little foothold of the land to Abraham. But that land promise of, of Canaan, that little area of the promised land, is a, we would say the New Testament argues, it is a type of the final inheritance of the land. Which means it's a foreshadowing, not of a little area in the Middle East, it's a foreshadowing of the new creation, the new earth. So we would say, I do believe in a literal, if you want to use the word literal, I believe in a literal fulfillment of the land promise. I just don't think it's, it's Israel during the thousand year reign, I think it's the whole new creation in Christ in the future. So I believe that God is going to give his people the land, I think the land is the new earth. And so we're not, we're not saying that promise doesn't come to fruition, we're saying though, the, the Old Testament promise thing was a little down payment, a little type of the whole earth, which is what Adam and Eve were going to have, and they failed. Israel got a little piece back, and then we are going to inherit the whole creation. So we're not rejecting the land. And just to make a point here, Romans 4 talks about Abraham. And on this very point, it's very interesting. Verse 13 to me is, is strong on this. 
Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the cosmos, world. Now, do you see that? Uh, it did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. So, okay, let, let's try to put together the last couple weeks. Remember what we argued last week for a long time? We said the New Testament has final decisive authority in how to interpret the Old Testament. And that just makes sense. Of course, as, as you go forward, does Revelation get clearer? Yes. Do the lights get brighter? Yes. So when Paul shows up in Romans 4, he's not rejecting the land promise. Is he mentioning the land promise in this verse? Yes. God made a promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be, he doesn't say heir of the Middle Eastern little sliver of land called Israel. He sees the fulfillment of the land promise in Cosmos, the whole new earth. And so when Paul is reading it with a whole Bible view in line, in light of Christ, here's how I think Paul would say it. Jesus came as the true Israel. Jesus died and bore our sin and rose. And Jesus purchased for us the new creation. And all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is going to see to it that, yes, his people, the true Israel, get the land, the new creation. And we're going to see that not in the millennium. We're going to see that in the new creation, which comes after final judgment. So do you see that's a pretty different way of reading a lot of the Bible that talks about the land. And so we would see the, 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 the promised land in, in the Old Testament as a type and the ultimate fulfillment through Christ being the new creation. Yeah, I want to pick up on that because we're talking about Adam, and this has been, uh, Wellam makes this critique of the dispensational perspective, and I think it's spot on, is the dispensationalist perspective generally starts with Abraham. It doesn't, and, and I think rightly, it doesn't go back far enough. It should, mm -hmm. We should start with Adam in the garden. Mm -hmm. And here's why, in light of what you were saying, why getting Adam right and keeping him first in this and his connection to the world and all of that, what Mark was saying is because you've got the Garden of Eden, this lush garden with jewels and stones and fruit and angels. What do you see in all the descriptions of the tabernacle in the temple? You have gravings of fruit and pomegranates and cherubs and precious stones. Like the, the tabernacle in the temple was to be a microcosm of Eden, like a, a small return to the garden. Um, obviously an imperfect one, um, in, in a lot of ways, but still a very real place where God and man can meet together again. Because what do they do in the garden? God and man walked. God walked with his people in the garden. And God says to Israel, I will walk in your midst. What's he talking about? The temple, the tabernacle, and later the temple. So it, it was but a small picture, a small microcosm of what was lost that we were trying to get back to. And so when we see this in Romans 4, when he says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it's picking up on that original Eden language that Adam was to spread the garden to fill every corner of the globe. Um, and so the tabernacle and the temple were but a small picture of that. Hey, we can get back to this. God is making a way but we should know that ultimately it couldn't just be one little spot of land in the Middle East. It had to be the whole world because that was the original intent in the garden. Let me just keep going with that point, Greg. This is okay. such an important point. So just pick up on these, these, these three points that Greg's making here. You've got the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You've got Israel and the tabernacle and temple. And then you've got the new creation. There's those three points, right, which are big points in the Bible. You notice what links these together. So just think about the first two, like, it, like he's mentioning. The Garden of Eden. When they're kicked out of the garden, remember which direction they go? They are knocked east of Eden, right? So the entrance to Eden apparently was from the east because when they were sent out of the garden, they were sent out eastward. And so the garden must have faced east. And who guards the garden? Cherubim with a flaming sword. 
right? And you've got all the, the gold and onyx and all these stones and the tree of life. Okay, now you fast forward to the tabernacle and the temple. How do you enter the tabernacle? It's always, no matter where it is located, it moves. Every time they put it down, you enter from the east. Uh, Adam is told to work and to keep the garden. Those two verbs, to work and keep or guard, are used, those exact two Hebrew verbs are used for who? The priest in the tabernacle who's called to work and keep the tabernacle, work and guard the tabernacle. Exact two words. So Adam is now a priestly figure, right? And Eden looks like kind of a pre-tabernacle. It's kind of like before the tabernacle, we have a similar situation. And you also have other things that connect those, God's presence, like he said. When you get to the end of the whole Bible, remember the first two chapters of Genesis, and the last two chapters of Revelation match up time and time again. It's the only time you have the tree of, the tree of life, really. It's Revelation and Genesis. The, the tree of life is in both places, which is no surprise. What else do you find? There's no temple in either the new creation or in Eden. There was no temple or tabernacle. Why not? Because we didn't need a, a barrier between us and God when there was no sin. Adam and, Eve could, Adam and Eve could just walk around with God in the garden. They didn't need a, a barrier because of their sinfulness. They could just talk to God face to face. In Revelation 22, we will see his face. There's no temple. The Lord God is there, and we are, present in, we are in his presence. So what you're seeing is what was meant to be in Eden and lost is partially recovered through Israel's tabernacle and temple, God dwelling with his people, and through the land there. But those are not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the new creation, the new Jerusalem, where God without a temple will dwell uh, in, the, in the midst of his people again. Let me say one more thing, um, kind of just uh, in contrast with dispensationalism, what we're saying. Like, um, uh, one of the things we have to be careful is I don't want to call a dispensationalist unbiblical. Why do I say that? Because they are trying to put, they, they revere this book just as much as we do. They do. They love God's word. They're devoted to God's word. Folks of that persuasion. Um, and I want to honor that. And I don't want to say, oh, they're trying to, you know, destroy what God says. They're not, I'm not going to try to accuse them of any foul, nefarious motives. I'm not going to try to, you know, impugn, you know, their intentions when they read the Bible. I just, I happen to think they're wrong based on what, what, what I see, what we're trying to show. Um, but I don't want to accuse them as somehow they're unfaithful because of their position. We're all trying to deal with 66 books that were given over 1,500 years. Um, there's a lot to wrestle with, and so we really want to be as kind and gracious as we can, even while being firm in the position that we're, we're arguing for, um, because there, there's a lot to think through in this. There's a, there's a lot of pieces to, to try to fit together, a lot of things to, to try to make sense of. I just We're just convinced the dispensational perspective is more um, not exegetically drawn out of the text as much as it is an assumption that's then read into the text. And I know they wouldn't say that, um, and, I, and I realize it's dangerous even to say that, but um, you have to assume that position in order to find it. Like we said last week, 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture. You, if, you, if you come to that text and let it stand on its own, you don't see a, a pre-trib rapture there. You have to bring that from somewhere else. Um, and so what we're trying to do as best we can, and I know they say that's what they're trying to do as well. I think they've got assumptions that cloud it. We're trying to say, what does the text itself lead us to see and understand? So we are going to just quick, I'll just quickly recap where we were last week. We are arguing for a creation covenant with Adam. Again, virtually, I think all dispensationalists will say that there is no covenant with Adam. That, 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 that's not going to be something that they're going to focus on. Again, they start with Noah, and then Abraham is going to be more the focus. But I do think there's a creation covenant with Adam. Let me recap last week real quickly. Number one reason, even though the word covenant does not, is not mentioned in Genesis 1 through 3, the word covenant does not have to be present in the text for a covenant to occur. 
So let me tell you about another covenant that happened in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve got married, but the word covenant is not used in Genesis 1 through 3 for Adam and Eve's marriage. But was there still a covenant between Adam and Eve? Yes, later in the Bible, Proverbs and Malachi will talk about the covenant with the bride of your youth. So just because the word covenant is not used in Genesis 2 doesn't mean there wasn't a marriage covenant. There was, and later scripture tells us that's a covenant. And so the word doesn't have to be present. Number two, there's no textual evidence uh, for a covenant at creation, or there is, I should, that's backwards. There is textual evidence for a covenant at creation. We argue that Hosea 6, 7, although controversial, I think it's arguing for a covenant with Adam. You see there, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So I think, I know that's a disputed text, but I think that's referring to a covenant with Adam. Number three, the necessary elements of a covenant are present in creation. Can you quickly recap that, Greg, the, the, the two parties and, and whatnot? Yeah. Um, can, do you remember Shriner's succinct definition of what a covenant is? I'm drawing a blank on Oh, that. man, I don't have it. I had it, and I, I don't have it anymore because um, we want to make sure we have a definition of covenant. But um, it's basically, it, it, is, it, is an, it is a solemn uh, personal agreement that two parties enter into with, um, you know, with requirements and expectations based on that. It's more than a contract. It involves promises, um, and you're you're committing more of yourself um, to the other party in a covenant. Um, we'll we'll get that better definition. I, forgive me for not having that right off the brain. Um, but there's necessary elements of a covenant. Obviously, you got to have at least two parties, two people entering into this agreement, into this this union of sorts. Um, and secondly, you got to have stipulations, requirements, saying, okay, as, as one covenant partner says, this is what I'm going to do as in this covenant. The other one's saying, this is what I'm going to do in response um, to that. And then there's promises of blessings or curses for obedience or disobedience. If, I, if, we, if both parties keep their, their word, then there's blessings that come. If, if one party breaks their promise in this covenant, then there are, there are severe uh, effects, severe uh, requirements or curses that are brought um, upon the disobedient party. And, and in the case of us and God, it's always a covenant of the greater with the lesser. Um, God is the one who initiates that covenant. We respond in faith and, and all of that. Um, but you, you have to see that there's two partners, there's stipulations, requirements, blessings, and curses. That marks every kind of covenant. Whether God and man, man and man, there's always those elements there. And so you look at Genesis 1 through 3 and you see those elements are clearly there. Um, I, I, I would say indisputably there, uh, the elements of what a covenant is. You've got has. eternal life and you've got death uh, yeah. before them, and they're, they're under obligation to their creator, mm -hmm. and they violate the covenant, and curse right. comes as a result. I, I, I agree with you. Point number four, we'll do this one relatively quickly. Covenants can exist where there is no redemptive component. So what is that point? Some people have argued covenants cannot exist unless there's a redemptive aspect to it. Since Adam and Eve had not yet sinned, there was no redemption necessary yet, so there could not be a covenant. But an immediate response would be, Adam and Eve got married before there was sin. That's a covenant before redemption. So you don't have to have redemption as part of a covenant. That's actually not true, and it wasn't true of, the, of marriage between Adam and Eve. And then you, we've got listed here from Shriner, uh, the same was true for Jacob and Laban, David and Jonathan, Israel, the Gibeonites, Solomon and Hiram, king of Tyre. There, were, there was no redemption aspect to these covenants, but they were still uh, covenants. Point number five. This is the one I want to linger on. If you're in Romans, flip to chapter five, uh, right next to where we were. The New Testament parallels between Adam and Christ support a covenant being present in creation. If you've ever heard of, if you've ever had or heard someone say that Adam was a federal head of the human race, have you ever heard that language? Adam was the federal head of the human race or Christ is the, is the federal head uh, of, of redemption. When you say federal head, that's the word, that federal word goes back to a word for covenant. 
In other words, what federal head means is Adam was the covenant head of the human race. He was the representative that went before us on our behalf before God. If he obeys, we get credit. If he disobeys, we get blame. That's what a a covenant representative is. And I think Romans 5, we won't read all this section, but it is overwhelmingly strong, I think, that that's what we have in Adam. Just look uh, real quick, verse 12 of Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, clearly Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Does the Bible tell us for sure that Adam is a type of Christ? It's, there's no getting around this one. Romans 5.14, Adam's a type of Christ. Was, is Christ a covenant representative head for us? Absolutely he is. If he is the fulfillment of the type, so not to confuse everybody, a type is the foreshadowing, the shadow. The fulfillment is called the antitype. That word is actually in the New Testament. The word antitype is a Greek word in the New Testament. So type is the shadow. Antitype is the fulfillment. If Christ as the antitype or fulfillment of the of Adam, if he is a covenant head who saves us, doesn't that demand that Adam was a covenant head who failed us? I think there's no getting around this. I know other people will try to get around this, but I think that's pretty strong. Greg, uh, further thoughts? Also, 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. Um, if you'll turn there real quick. Uh, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 are very clear on the Adam-Christ connection. And again, the, the language that is used, as we read in Romans, if we'd read all that last uh, part of chapter 5 and then here, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, uh, it says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And it, if you don't have covenant categories, it, it's very difficult to make sense of verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because if, if it's just everyone without exception no qualifications whatsoever, no covenant headship, um, then it almost seems as though Paul's arguing, arguing for universalism here. Mm. Um, because, well, every single person who's ever lived comes from Adam. If that's how we're establishing this. Then when he says, for as in Adam all die, then in Christ all shall be made alive. That means right. every single person who's ever lived will experience the resurrection. But if we understand this in covenantal categories, which I think we should, then if we see Adam as a covenant head of the old humanity, then everyone who's in Adam dies. Okay? But then if it's in Christ, all are made alive, who's the all? It's all who have Christ as their covenant head. Right. And we know clearly the New Testament teaches, you know, that's by election and then our response of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it clearly can't be talking about every single person. But again, if Christ is our covenant head, then that we're made alive in him because he's our head. Then that goes back to say, how do we make sense of Adam being our head and, and us suffering from his disobedience unless he's a covenant representative and what he did, he did on our behalf as our covenant representative. That's exactly right. Okay, points six and seven here. Number six. Now, this we'll get to, Lord willing, next Sunday. Noah. God's covenant with Noah was, the Hebrew word is established rather than cut. Just stick with me here. This sounds strange. 
So God's covenant with Noah is said to be established in Genesis 6, not cut, indicating a renewal of something previous rather than the initiation of something new. Now, that sounds like a mouthful. Peter Gentry, who's an Old Testament scholar who is sometimes hard to keep up with, this guy yes. knows his stuff with the Old Testament. He studied it deeply for many years. I think, he was in, I think he was in school for 17 years after college working. I mean, it was an insane amount of time he's worked uh, on this stuff. And uh, he said, when you do a thorough word study, uh, virtually every time the word established is used for a covenant, it's referring to a covenant that has already been initiated in the past. When the word cut is used for a covenant, that's when you're starting a new covenant. And what's interesting is the first, follow me here, the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible, it's with Noah, right? And when the word is used, it's not the word cut, which is what you expect if you're starting a new covenant. What's the word? It's the word established, which tends, it almost always means it's picking up with a covenant that already has existed beforehand. Well, what covenant could have been existing before Noah? Well, who does Noah look a lot like in the Bible? He looks like Adam. And so I think the most uh, most logical answer is it's implying that a covenant did begin with Adam and that it's now being picked up again with Noah. And uh, that's why both men are told to do a lot of the same things and, and deal in a lot of the same ways. Greg, thoughts on that? Um, yeah, this will also, you know, you think about establishing versus cutting. Um, the clearest text in the Bible on the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, uses the word what? Cut. Um, and so, you, you start to see the use of these words, and it's like, why do we call the new covenant a new covenant? I mean, it says it in the text, but is it just reestablishing something, mm -hmm. or is it introducing something new, as we're going to see? It's introducing something new. And so the distinction between establish and cut is not, again, it's not one of these things we're just making a mountain out of a molehill. Um, this is significant um, exegetically. I mean, it absolutely is. Um, and so, again... In Genesis, when it talks about, I will establish my covenant with you, when God says that to Noah, um, if we understand how the word works, he's not talking about starting something brand new. He's talking about reestablishing something that was already in place. If I can just say for, uh, for next week, I, you may already be familiar with a number of these things, but I think next week this argument will be, I hope, stronger or clearer. Mm -hmm. Because next Sunday when we look at Noah, if, you're, if you haven't thought about it recently, the parallels between Noah and Adam are really remarkable. Uh, they're really astonishing how similar they're, how similarly they're, they're talked about. And um, so next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get into some of the parallels there and show that Adam is seen as kind of a new Noah. Uh, Noah is seen as kind of like a new Adam type figure, but he also falls short, uh, mm -hmm. uh, just like Adam himself uh, falls short. Can we make that homework of sorts? If you, yeah. if you want to, you're not bound to this. You're not going to be <laughs> graded on it. But if you want to, read what it says about Adam, God's words to him, and, and all that, and then go see what it says in Genesis 6, um, Genesis, and Genesis 9 to Noah, and start trying to see some of those parallels on your own. So kind of get your brains going a little bit more on that before we talk about it. Yes, and the, the character, uh, the, the figure of Adam is sort of, you have characters who pick up on Adam's role over mm -hmm. and over in the Bible. Yeah. I would say Abraham is an Adam figure. Israel is an Adam figure. David is an Adam figure. Ultimately, Jesus is the last Adam. So you, you kind of see this recapitulation of this, of this theme, and every single character falls short, just like Adam. Every single one falls short, uh, except for Christ. Final point here for a covenant with Adam, the words image, oh, actually we have two more points. The, the words image and likeness are words that are best understood in covenantal terms. Greg, just a quick uh, word on that. Um, there, you could do a, a deeper study on this, but in the ancient Near East, um, apparently image and likeness, whenever that was used, it was generally used in covenantal context, even in other religions and other, other places. So 
Uh, again, there, you know, for, for Moses to be talking about this um, in Genesis and writing this, for him not to be speaking in covenantal terms would be very unusual. Again, we won't say it's absolutely impossible, right. but it'd just be like, why would he, like, that, that would make sense to the people of the time, to Israel. They, they'd understand that. Yeah, these image and likeness, God made, that's covenantal terminology. Um, and then number eight, th- this one is, I think, uh, it is significant. Genesis 1 uses the word for God, Elohim. Genesis 2, when you get up close and personal in the creation uh, of humanity, it uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord, if you've ever noticed that. You've got God in Genesis 1, and then you get to Genesis 2, and it's the capital L-O-R-D, which is only used when God says, this is my covenant name that I give to my people. And so for that name to be used in Genesis 2 and the creation of Adam and Eve and assuming all the commands of Genesis 1 as well, uh, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, like it, it just, it's, to me, it just seems to scream there is a covenant in place, in force, that Adam and Eve are in. Adam is the head of that. And uh, when he messes up, everything that is affected by that covenant, and again, it's not just him and humanity, it's all of creation. That's why we call it a creation covenant because when he sinned, it wasn't just that death entered humanity. Um, God cursed the world. He literally cursed the world. You know, there'd be thorns and thistles. There weren't thorns and thistles. They were going to have to to work hard. The ground wasn't going to yield things as easily. Um, And and all that kind of like the whole world was affected by Adam's sin. Why? Because his, the covenant headship that he had uh, extended beyond just humanity, but to cover the entirety of creation. Yes, and just just one more thing on that. The the word so if you see in your in most English Bibles you'll have something like Lord God or Yahweh God. So you've got Yahweh Elohim linked together as God's name in Genesis two and three, and I think it's over twenty times uh, in those two chapters God is called Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And I don't know of a single place in the entire rest of the Old Testament where he's called Yahweh Elohim that many times in one small area. Uh, you, can, you can look it up online. I try to look through different references. But this is strong evidence for covenant language. And it's, it's, it's remarkable how many times he's called Lord God. The, the person who does not call him Yahweh Elohim is the serpent. He just calls him Elohim. He doesn't want anything to do with a covenant God. He wants to undermine God's character. So he just calls him, did Elohim actually say to you, you should not eat of the tree? So the snake gets rid of the word Yahweh. Of course he does. He hates the covenant faithfulness of God. He just t- calls him Elohim. But everyone else, every, every other time, basically throughout the chapters, he's, he's referred to as Lord God. So we want to walk through a part of Genesis 3. So please turn to Genesis 3. It's obviously as familiar as it gets, but I think there's just so much here. We, we talked about we, we want to weave practical application as well as theological uh, meaning into what we're, what we're reading. So we want to walk through uh, the first, at least the first half and maybe some more of Genesis chapter 3 right now. And we'll just let some of what we've talked about flesh itself out as we, as we go here. So Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh Elohim had made, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said, to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good uh, and evil. So just real quick, point of application, coming down to the ground floor here on this, on this stuff. The first statement Satan makes, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree 
in the garden. And in the next statement, you shall not surely die. What is Satan undermining about God in his opening couple lines in Scripture? Number one, is he undermining God's Word? Would, would, the, what he's really saying is, would a good God actually say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Right? That, that's the, the implication is, first of all, he's questioning God's Word. Has his tactic changed to this day? What does Satan love to do? He loves to undermine the inerrancy, infallibility, and faithfulness of Scripture. He wants you to make it feel like you're primitive and unscientific to believe what the Bible says, that you're backwoods, that you don't know what you're saying, what you're talking about. Uh, so he wants, you to make, he wants you to be embarrassed by this book. Right? It, to, to make it modern-day language, Satan wants you to doubt the reliability of God's Word in this book. He wants you to not believe it, and he does everything he can in the world and in the culture to make us feel foolish for believing what this book says. Right? We, 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 just, we feel that pressure to not want to submit ourselves to this, to this book. Secondly, he undermines the character of God. Would God really limit every tree in the garden? Of, did God do that? No, God limited one tree. He says, did, would God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? He's making it sound like God is not good. He's not generous. He's not gracious. He's not a God who's actually out for your good. He's a God who's a killjoy, and he really wants to rob you of, of joy and, and, and things that are good for you, so God is limiting every tree. Well, he's not, that's not even true. He's not doing that. And then the third thing Satan does in his opening statements, you shall not surely die. He undermines the doctrine of God's judgment. Has that changed? in 6,000 years? No. Does he still undermine God's judgment, his wrath, his justice, the doctrine of hell, right? Aren't those often some of the first things that are attacked when people approach the Bible? So, the first thing you learn from Satan is he hates God's word, he hates God's character, and he hates God's justice and judgment, and he wants to do everything, we can, to, everything he can to undermine our belief in those things. So, Greg, any other thoughts on Satan's approach here? Um, again, going back to what God had said um, and, and stuff like that in verse 5, you know, after he says um, in verse 4, you will not surely die, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I've always found it interesting. How did God create Adam and Eve? in his image and likeness. likeness. And so Satan is basically calling God a liar. He's like, you're not really like God yet, even though they already are. Um, Satan's basically saying, no, you're not. God's like you said, God's holding out on you. He's, there, there's something he hasn't given you. You can't really be like God unless you have this, um, which was having your eyes open, knowing good and evil. Um, but Satan, you know, going back to the word of God part, like, he is always working to sow distrust in what God has said. Um, and this is, this is where at times a simple faith comes into play for us. It's like, you know, like you said, the world will say we're, we're backwoods, we're backwards, we're foolish, we're ignorant because we trust what this says. It's amazing. Adam's failure to trust the simplicity of what God had said is what plunged the whole human race in the world into death and chaos. Um, and so we just have a lot more voices now yelling and screaming at us. Listen, you can't trust what God said. God's holding out on you. There's more out there for you if you'll just, you know, distance yourself from what God said and, and you know, pursue something else. When in reality, life is found in holding to that very simple maxim or principle, trust the word of God. Trust God's word. If God said, I've made you in my image and likeness, Adam and Eve, you are in my image and likeness, and I haven't withheld anything good from you. He has not. Um, and so let's, let's live as much as we can by what God says um, about us and what he's going to do in us and for us. And 
you know, let the world, in, in a sense, not that we take it flippantly, but let the world think what it will. Like, life is found in what God says, and there's always death when we go away from it. Yeah, and just going back to what you're talking about, Greg, here, that you will be like God on the screen there. You'll be like God. And then knowing good and evil, I think the best view of what knowing good and evil or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil means, I think it means who gets to determine what's right and what's wrong. To, to know good and evil, I think, is talking about who chooses what is right and what is wrong. Who, who calls that shot? And it's either God, who's the objective standard of right and wrong, or we arrogantly usurp God's position. And we say, no, I'm God. My whims and will is going to determine what's right or wrong for me. And in our culture today, do we not want the knowledge of good and evil? We want to determine what's right and wrong for me, and we don't want to listen to what God has to say. So Satan wants us to be like God in all the wrong ways, but he doesn't want us to be like God in all the right ways. Hum, like to be holy and faithful and truthful like God. You know, he wants us to actually take God's position and begin to call the shots uh, in a place that God is not open for us. I just thought of something. Um, you know, we, way back when we talked about uh, systematic theology, the doctrine of God. And if you're at all familiar with that, you know, there, when it comes to the attributes of God, like the characteristics of who God is, there's two main categories, the, the communicable attributes mm-hmm. and the incommunicable, which simply means there's some things that God is that we can kind of be like ourselves. And there's other things that God is that we can't be, you know, like God is eternal. We're not, we can't be eternal. We haven't existed forever. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. We can never be those things. Um, you know, but there's some things like God is holy. We must be holy because God is holy. God is righteous. We must strive and, and so on and stuff like that. Satan confused those categories mm-hmm. and, and wanted Adam and Eve in a sense to think that they could enter into territory that is reserved for God alone. Um, and so even having the right categories and understanding, and this helps us resist his temptations, I think, like if we understand there's certain things that, that God is that I can never be, that's okay. I don't have to be those things. Only God can be that, and I can never be that, and I need to be all right with that. If Adam and Eve had been okay with who they were as God made them, and they were like God in the way God meant for that, then the temptation to, to try to be like God in a way that only God can be, mm-hmm. it, it, would, it would have fallen to the ground. And so yeah. I think we can learn from that. It's like, understand, like if God is who he is and there's certain things that can only be true about God, you know, we can resist the temptation that makes us want to put ourselves in God's place because what happens a lot of times, and, and I say this having gone through it, you know, something bad happens, you know, why would God do that? Meaning if I were in God's place, I would not have. Um, well, let, let's, let's reserve, you know, sovereignty. Let's reserve, you know, uh, wisdom and knowledge and all of that to God because only God has that. We don't. And so it keeps us from, from giving into that temptation, I think. It helps us not give into it. We say, you know what? Yeah, this is hard, and I might not understand, but, but I'm not God. I'm not omniscient. I'm not all wise. I don't know everything. I don't know all God's plans. I, how, how dare I even want to say, if I were God, I would have done something different. Um, and, and so I think that's how we start to fight a temptation like that when it comes. That's good. Verse 6, and this is really important. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here again, what are you seeing? It's the same thing all of us struggle with, right? She allows her senses and her feelings to take higher precedence than what God has said. Instead of trusting God's bare word that if you eat of it, you'll die, instead she trusted what she saw. She looked at it, and it looked good. It was delightful to the eyes. It was desirable for uh, wisdom, at least that's what the snake had told her, and so she took and ate and gave to her husband also. So what we're going to have to always be struggling with is do we trust what our senses are telling us, what our feelings and emotions tell us, 
or are we going to submit what we feel to what God has said? And uh, Eve and Adam both fall together, really, and they both refuse to allow God's word to stand supreme. Instead, uh, they trust their eyes. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Uh, I still think verse 8 is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you, singular? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, uh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the, the excuse making, of course, picks up right here. Adam, instead of being uh, a uh, a godly husband and, and owning his sin and, and, and taking full responsibility instead tries to blame, to blame Eve and the downward spiral begins. We're running out, almost out of time here, Greg. Any, any concluding thoughts before? We, we want to talk about Genesis 3.15, uh, getting into next week probably, but, uh, which is the, when the gospel first shows up. But any concluding thoughts for today? No. Not that would that can do shortly. Okay, that, that's, that's good. So next week, we'll try to pick up Genesis 3.15, and we'll jump quickly through 4 to 9. We're going to go through chapters 4 to 9, uh, mostly spending time in chapters 6 and 9. And next Sunday, looking at the covenant with Noah and comparing Adam and Noah, which I think is an important thing to do. So let me, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, conclude. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would help us not to trust our eyes, our feelings, our, our own intuitions, that those would not have priority over your word, uh, that you would show us, God, that your word is the final authority in all matters. And I pray, God, that we would, uh, we would submit ourselves joyfully, trustingly to what you have told us. Uh, even if it doesn't seem to make sense to us in the moment, we need to be like children who trust their parents uh, to do what is right, even when the child cannot fully understand at times. And we need to obey and trust anyway, Lord, because we know that you are good and that you do all things well. Now, most importantly, Lord, we thank you that although Adam failed horribly as our covenant head and representative, our federal head, and he plunged us into sin and death, we are thankful, God, that you sent your son, the last Adam, who obeyed as our covenant head in our place, died uh, an atoning death to remove the stain of Adam's sin and our sin, and has made us uh, to be a kingdom of priests before you, all by his grace and all for your glory. So we pray that you'd also bless this service coming up in just a moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.